0: Indeed, it is good to be back in the warm-hearted Gaisley, the town and village that has become infamous in some parts of the world. I remember very well the first meeting that we had here and the events leading up to it. Um, I remember contacting... The pastor of the Cambridge Church, one Sunday morning prior to our plans, or prior to our arrival in England, for one of the meetings that were scheduled, and uh, or concerning one of the meetings that was scheduled in his church, and he advised me the meetings had been canceled. Little did I know that at that very moment, Richard was sitting in his living room. few hours later, or maybe it was just a few minutes later, I don't really know how long it was, but uh, I had a call in my office while I was away in California, and someone managed to get through to where I was staying in, in California and asked me to ring Richard back just as soon as I could. I think it was within the hour. We were about ready to start a meeting there at one of the largest Bible conferences that we had ever Uh, had there in Sacramento, and uh, so we started the meeting, and I got on the phone, and Richard offered the old manse, the old rectory, as a place to hold a Gazeley meeting, the first Gazeley meeting, instead of at the church, because there was quite a number of folk who wanted to be uh, able to enjoy and, and fellowship together in the truth of God. And I'm thankful for that, like we are here tonight. Well, that uh, grew, didn't it, Richard? It grew from there until, uh, it has con- and it has continued for so many years with a consistent message, a message that Christ would have us share with his people. And... Uh, I want to say something also about Brother Gregory. Brother Gregory is, um, for some years, was a student at Heartland College, and then he graduated. And then he eventually was there as a teacher for, uh, was it three years? Four, four years? Almost six. Oh, my. <laughs> Almost six. Time flies. <laughs> and um and though he's not much on campus anymore, we still feel like he's part of the Heartland family. Amen. <laughs> and I know that you will appreciate his messages this weekend as um, as uh, you hear them. Brother Gregory and I have traveled <coughs> quite a number of places together and preached together on quite a number of occasions. But this is a very special time because we've never preached together at Gaisley. And... Uh, I look forward to the weekend. I believe that uh, we are living in the most momentous time in history. I am presently teaching a church history class. It comes around every second year. And so um, every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday mornings, I have a classroom of about 20 students who are learning about church history and I'm learning a lot as well. And what's being reinforced in my mind as I teach this class, I think for the fourth time or fifth time now, is the powerful impact that history has upon us in our own generation. The tragedy is that much of what is happening in our world today is a result of most of people most of God's people and most of the people of this planet forgetting the history, the true history, the history of God's church, the history of His people. And so we see a lot of things happening. In fact, I am amazed at how so many things are converging at the end of the millennia here uh, in these next 12 to 15 months or so. It is amazing. Incidentally, uh, I have decided without consulting the Gaisley Bible Fellowship leadership to uh, change my schedule just a little. Instead of uh, preaching on the ecumenical movement in the Bible tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to reverse it and preach on the uh, the principle of uh, stewardship in in light of the last days. Getting ready for Y2K. I'm going to switch those two topics, if that's okay with with you all. I think events that have happened in the last few months have created an urgency, and I want to present that message on Sabbath afternoon while while there will be, I believe, uh, uh, a larger uh, audience at that time. Now, I want to um, share tonight, however, on a principle that is very relevant to the questions of the final test that is about to come upon God's people. And I believe we're right about there. Um, you know, we can focus on many different things. We can talk about Y2K We can talk about the economic crisis that's developing in this world. We can talk about many things that are very important. But there is a subject that is often overlooked. And that is the subject of the problems we face with ourselves the challenges we have as we look at our relationships to other people. How do we relate to people who are offensive, who might abuse us, who might misrepresent us, who might uh, falsely accuse us or even persecute us? How are we to relate to those situations. And I believe that Christ has given us in His Word some very important principles. And one of the key principles in relating to this matter, at least in my mind, is to understand God's purpose behind it. When I understand the big picture, it suddenly begins to make sense And I realize that the troubles that I go through on this earth and in this life are part of God's big plan, part of His purpose. And I want to share with you a little on that tonight. Have you ever had anyone say something about you to someone else that wasn't very nice? Huh? Have you? How do you feel? You know, sooner or later, it comes back around. Sooner or later, somebody well-meaning comes to you and says, do you know what so-and-so said about you? <laughs> How do you feel? What feelings and emotions go through your mind? depends what's a friend, you it was a friend, not it? All right, but let's just say that it was. Mm and somebody said something about you that wasn't very nice, what feelings do you have? Do you feel anger? Yes? Hmm? Resentment? How about a little bit of um, uh, desire for retaliation? You see, there are many responses. And all of them have to do with the development Of our character and the maturity of our character. But I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of um, Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. And I've mentioned this before, I think, uh, in the presence of some of you, so maybe you'll remember this point. But this is actually reason number one why God allows you to suffer offense. In fact, I'm going to go a step further. I believe that God ordains that you will go through offensive experiences. God ordains it. I'm not saying that He causes it. God never causes pain, or, or rather, um, God never causes uh, something sinful to happen. But Jesus himself told us that these things would happen. And um, God, in his plan for humanity and for your life in, in particular, has a purpose to develop you in certain ways and to use you in certain ways, and to break the power of sin in your life in certain ways. And therefore, it is required, if you will, to go through a certain uh, type of experience, offensive things. And so God ordains that to happen. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 We'll read verses um, 28 and 29. Jesus said, and these are the words of Christ himself, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest. Unto your souls. Now, Jesus here (coughs) is inviting us to learn something from Him. You've heard about the school of Christ. Jesus invites us into His school, and there's only two classes in the school of Christ meekness and lowliness. Now, what's the difference between meekness and lowliness? Have you ever thought about that? We often confuse them, or rather, we often put them together and Basically, to us, they mean the same thing or similar thing. But there's actually an important, a number of distinctions between the two words, but there's one in particular which I'd like to bring to your attention. What is lowliness? Modesty, modesty, yes. Not thinking of putting yourself up better than someone else, right. Humility. Uh, Humility, yes, that's right. Humility is a is a good word. It's a one word thing that we all understand. Humility. It's not. It's the principle of not putting myself at the notice of others. Not promoting myself as anything better than someone else. That's why I like Richard's uh, suggested definition not thinking more of yourself than anyone else. You see, the principle of salvation is that we learn how to minister to others. We learn how to be a servant to others. We learn how to find ways to help other people with the resources that God has given us on the way to salvation. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Do you have burdens? Do you have pain? Do you suffer from abuse and offense of other people? Jesus promises to give us rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. Now what is meekness? If if humility or lowliness is humility, then what then is meekness? I like that word quietly (laughs) quietly yes of course standing for principle meekness if you notice the lives of those who were meek take Moses for example if you look at Moses life when he was abused by those Israelites out in the wilderness how did he respond He prayed for them, didn't he? Yes. He kept his mouth shut. He went to God. And he asked God for the solution. And he depended upon God for the solution. And God brought him, and this is a principle of righteousness by faith. When you have a problem, we often, when I get upset at someone, I often want to uh, rise up and take matters into my own hands and deal with the problem. I want to defend myself. And sometimes defending myself, best defense is a good offense. Yeah. And so human nature rises up and wants to attack when attacked. But meekness. Now you look at Jesus. The Bible says that he was the Lamb of God. And when they disfigured him, what did he do? Did he retaliate? Did he talk back? Did he threaten? He was quiet. He was silent. When they pressed a crown of thorns on his head, what did he do? He prayed for them. He was a, a sheep before his shearers. What is the sheep before his shearers like? Dumb. It's just quiet. He lets them take the wool off. That's how Jesus was. He opened not his mouth, the scripture says. The quality of meekness is that principle of keeping your mouth shut when you're abused even unjustly. Oh, that's hard. Oh, have you ever experienced abuse? Hmm? Have you ever experienced it when someone has done something to offend you? What do you want to do? You want to go tell them off. Don't you? That's a very human thing. I know that how it is with me. I want to go and rise up, and but I have to turn it over to the Lord and keep my mouth shut. Otherwise, I make matters worse. Worse. Remember, the salvation of that soul is at stake. They've just sinned. And if you're going to treat them the wrong way, you might drive them deeper into sin or make them dig their heels in even more. The Bible says instead to heap what? Coals of fire. fire. The English will know about the coals. (laughs) They use a lot of coal for keeping their houses warm. When you have good coal fire like we do tonight here in the in the woods in the coal stove, that makes a nice warm atmosphere, doesn't it? On a chilly night. And you feel so comfortable and it's so warm. Well, Jesus is inviting us to develop the maturity of character. You see, meekness and lowliness are principles of character. And when God ordains that we go through abuse for one reason or another, He has in it and behind it all the principle of developing your character to prepare you for heaven. That's number one. I submit there are ten reasons. There may be a lot more, but there are ten I could think of. And uh, maybe you'll even think of some more. Here's another one. Do you remember the story of Job? What happened to Job? Well, you know the story of how Satan went before Christ and they had their little discussion and and so Satan was given permission to do some things to Job and and he wiped out all of Job's assets. Now coming in this planet, there's a lot of people that are going to lose their assets. Bible tells us that. Go to ye rich men, weep and howl for your misery, yeah and your your money bags have holes and the moths and rust and corrupted them and so on but job experienced the loss of all his assets in one sweep it was gone and then he lost his children but that wasn't the worst of it he had his wife come and tell him to curse god and die God forbid, wives, (laughs) that we should ever do that to our husbands when suffering distress. But then, not only that, he had three friends that came to see him. Were Job's friends really friends, Job? You must have sinned greatly. Look at what you what's happened. This is prosperity and theology and its zenith. These three friends of Job were teaching. The idea, which is still around today, that somehow you are blessed if you have lots of possessions and you're cursed if God takes them away. We still hear that theology all around. God wants you to be rich. So a lot of people join churches because they preach that theology. And if God wants us to be rich, then why are so many of His people poor? Rich, being rich is not necessarily an indication of the favor of God. Do you think Satan can make you rich? Yeah. Of course. And being poor isn't necessarily a sign of his disfavor, is it? It is the, some of the poorest people on earth that have been the greatest blessing to God's church. You think of the Waldenses, for example. <laughs> I've just been going over that with my students. These were poor people. They lived off the land. They didn't have a lot of assets. But yet they were the greatest blessing to medieval, the darkness, the spiritual darkness of medieval Europe that there was. Without them, Luther couldn't have done what he did. My guess is neither could have Wycliffe or Huss, or quite a number of other reformers had the Waldensies not carried on their missionary work in spite of their poverty. While the monks and the priests all lived in luxury. You see, it, it, it's not an indication of God's favor or disfavor concerning whether you are rich or poor. It's how you use that which God has given you that counts That's what God holds you responsible for. Your time, your talents, your energy, your resources, your finances, your influence, your voice, your pen. All those things have a part to play. And some of us have some talents, and others have other talents. Well, anyway, coming back to Job. Job Sat there and listened to his wife and his three friends telling him that somehow he had sinned against God and God had him under a curse. What was God doing with, with Job? Testing him. Testing him in what way? said he was really faithful. Really faithful. Another term we use for faithfulness is loyalty. You see, God was testing Job's loyalty and faithfulness to him. But more than testing it, God knew. It wasn't God that needed to know whether Job would be loyal. He knew that already. It was for the rest of the universe to see the principle involved. Now, not only that, God wasn't just testing Job. God was demonstrating about his love and power and how that one who was going through such excruciating agony, here he was full of boils. His body was festering with miserable sores. He'd lost his family, except for his wife. What grief can come from this kind of affliction? And then to be told, you are... Uh, under a curse of God. You think about that. That's almost overwhelming. And yet Job remained loyal. He said, though he, what? Slay. Slay me, yet will I trust him. See, trust and loyalty, they're similar words. And they have a lot to do with each other. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Are you prepared to trust God even though He lays you in the dust? Oh, what a challenge. You see, God's purpose in putting you through pain, in in ordaining offense, ordaining difficult chapters in your experience, is so that He may develop, test, and demonstrate your loyalty. Now, point number three. Daniel chapter three. Turn with me there for a moment. This is an interesting one. You know the story. It's about the uh, three Hebrew worthies who went through the fiery furnace. And um, God blessed them for their loyalty. God blessed them for their faithfulness. God honored their... um, principled stand for truth and save them from the fiery furnace. But in Daniel chapter 3, we have a very interesting passage that I want to draw to your attention. It's found in a verse that may not seem so important to us most of the time when we read this story, but it is nevertheless part of the story. And so we know the verse fairly well. And that's verse 27. Chapter 3, verse 27. It's a basic account of what happened. But notice what it says. The princes, the governors, the captains, the king's counselors, being gathered together, what? Saw these men. There's three small words here. All of those people were gathered together. They saw these men. Now, why, are the, why is that so important? I want you to notice, Nebuchadnezzar's primary purpose in raising up this great image was not only to defy the law and principles of God and the revealed will of God, but he also wanted to be known and recognized around the empire. And this was his way of getting that recognition. It's pride, you see. My kingdom is never going to cease. He thought he was God. And of course, in those days, in in Babylon, they worshipped the the emperor as God. In fact, most pagan religions worshipped their leader as if he was a god. So, but I want you to notice here. Now, this was to be one of the great wonders of the world. The story of the great image was to go all over the empire. Now what story do you think was going to go all over the empire? (laughs) This is the story of God's salvation of those three men who were thrown in the fiery furnace. That supersedes anything Nebuchadnezzar might have built in the plain of Dura. That was more obviously more powerful, obviously more compelling. And it drew attention to the God of heaven. So I see in this something very important. When you go through pain when you go through trial, when you experience abuse and persecution, which is what these young men went through, was a form of very severe persecution. It was a death penalty for not worshiping the image. Sounds familiar to the end of time, doesn't it? God used this experience as a witness. Remember this. Whenever you go through that kind of pain, whenever you go through offense. God isn't just trying to accomplish something with you. He's trying to use that experience to be a blessing to others. And so there's always somebody watching from a distance. You may not know it. You may not know who they are. But inevitably, there's always somebody watching how you're going to respond when you're abused. It demonstrates your Christianity, you see. And people... I don't care what you say about being in a post-modern world or in a post-Christian environment, which is what Britain and America seem to be, seem to be especially Britain. Especially Britain. <laughs> People, nevertheless, are still looking for a demonstration of godliness. They're still looking to find out what God is like. Oh, they're off in occultism, They're off in the new age this and the new age that. They're off with the acupuncturists. They're off with the iridologists. And they're off with all the other hocus pocus that's out there. And you know what? They don't find peace. They don't find peace. It's when you know God and when you know His truth that you have peace. When you experience His power in your life, that's when you have peace. And people are hungry for peace. And so they're looking and they're watching you and they're watching me to see how we respond when something wrong happens. Now, uh, a fourth reason. Maybe some of you want to write some of these down and study them later. A fourth reason. We find this in First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And there are other texts that could be brought into all this, but I'm just trying to highlight the the key texts that um, relate to these things. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read from verses 6 and 7. Wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold, what? Temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well, this is the epistle of Peter to the church. He's writing to the collective body of citizens of the kingdom of Christ those who have chosen to be part of the family of Jesus. And he's telling them that you're going to go through some very serious trials and temptations. And that trial is going to purify his church. See, not only is God trying to purify your character, not only is he trying to mature your personal character, but he's also collectively preparing a church, a body of people. And, and we are part of that body tonight, aren't we? And by God's grace, all of us are coming into harmony with, with Jesus so that He can purify our characters and thus have a church that is ready to meet Him when He comes. You see, the church of Jesus is more than just one person. There's a whole group of people. And they're from very scattered cultures and very obviously different backgrounds and um, different perspectives. And it's easy for many of God's people sometimes to get a little bit of a rub going one with another. Uh oh. Have you ever had that happen? A little bit of a conflict, a little tension between personalities maybe in the church? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. You see, God is trying to develop in us the ability to work through those things in ways that will honor Him, that will bring His glory and His character to the forefront. He wants to um, prepare us as a people so that when He comes, He will be able to say, Here is my church, my bride my people, who are prepared to live and reign with me in glory according to the character that I have developed in them, to the purity that I have collectively and fully developed. Notice verse 9 of chapter 2, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is not talking about individuals, it's talking about a body. A complete body of people, you see. Far more than just one person or two people. So God is working to make a collective body of purified people for his glory. Okay? And then number six. We find in Daniel chapter one. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. I'm sorry. I didn't mean Daniel chapter 1. I mean Daniel chapter 12. <laughs> Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be what? A time of trouble trouble such as never was. Now, if that's true, if there is a time of trouble coming such as never was, then we better get ready for it. (laughs) You see, God already has a plan. He's been working on it for a while. He ordained that you go through some trials and some experiences to get you ready. And by the way, sometimes you have to go through them over and over again. Have you ever noticed? There might be a couple of different reasons why we repeat certain things. And we go through certain experiences again and again and again. First of all, one reason could be that we have failed it the first time. So God has to bring us around full circle and let us have, have it happen to us again. In order to uh, give us another opportunity to develop that aspect of our characters. Isn't that right? There's another reason as well. Even if you succeed, He may very well bring it around to you again a little deeper, a little stronger. (laughs) Oh boy. Why? Because if He gave you the time of trouble such as never was all at once, you'd be in difficulty. And when it does come, He plans to have you ready for it in stages so that it doesn't overwhelm you. But nevertheless, only by the power of God are you going to be able to go through it. And unless you learn to depend upon the power of God now, you will not be able to learn to automatically depend upon the power of God then. You see God's thinking behind all this? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, when you have children, and no doubt most, many of you at least have had children, you don't give them the hard tasks first, do you? You start them with the easy task. Well, a child doesn't learn to walk in a day. It takes a while. He begins to crawl, then toddle, and then pretty soon he's walking on his own. And Unstable at first, but he gets more stable and more balanced as time goes on. And pretty soon he's running and jumping and doing all the things that every other child has done through history It's healthy and normal. You see, God treats us with compassion. He doesn't want to overwhelm us. He doesn't want to overthrow our confidence and faith in Him, but He builds it by degrees, little at a time. And so He has to prepare us for the future. And that's number six. Number seven. You find this in James, the book of James, that's there after the book of Hebrews, right down to the end of the New Testament. The book of James, chapter 1, and that's verse 2 and uh, two through 4. James, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I'm going to put this in a certain context. Because I believe that one of the reasons why God is allowing us to go through offense, painful experiences, Why God ordains painful experiences for His people and for you individually is to to go through the process of healing your soul. You see, you've been damaged by sin. I've been damaged by sin. And that damage leaves scars and it leaves sometimes open wounds. And this is part of God's process of healing your soul. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You're secure, you have peace, and you're satisfied with Christ. Nothing else has your attention and your attraction. You know, some of you are aware that April 1 of this year, my mother passed her arrest. It was a very sad and intense time for our family. And even now, when I think about it deeply, there, are, there is, uh, uh, how shall I put a sadness in my soul. Nevertheless, I know that my mother is going to be raised up in the resurrection. I have confidence in that. Because in the very last few days of her life, I asked her, I said, Mother, how is your soul? How are you with God? And she could tell me she was right with God. and She made right everything with everybody she knew that she could make right with. And so I'm thankful for that. But there's something else. My mother suffered a lot in the last few months of her life. We knew that she had cancer for nine months. She knew that she had cancer for nine months. And... During that time, her suffering increased and increased until the very end. It was awful. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And one Sabbath afternoon, I was standing on the porch in the back of the house talking to my dad in the sunshine. And I told him what a struggle I was having watching my mother suffer like that. It was a very hard experience for me. And as I watched her, I said, Dad, I said, I just, I'm really struggling with knowing how to handle the suffering she's going through. And my dad said something to me that I will never forget. He's a spiritual man. And he said, You know, he said, at the end of our lives, unless we die in some tragic accident instantaneously, At the end of our lives, we all suffer. We have pain, whether it's from the infirmities of old age, or some debilitating disease, or some, some kind of suffering. And he said that suffering is God's way of alienating our affections from planet Earth and giving us opportunity to grasp and hold unto heaven and to himself. Pain and suffering, it works like that. It's designed to break your affections to planet Earth so that you will not want that anymore. In fact, you'll hate the things of this world and that you will love the things of God. And suffering is designed to help you strengthen the bond with God. You see? And that gave me peace. I realized that my mother was going through those last stages of releasing all that she held dear on planet Earth and just putting herself completely in the hands of God. And I could could relate to that. That was was what I needed to hear. So I thank my Heavenly Father for my earthly father (laughs) who shared an opportune thought. But it comes in here that in every bit of suffering that we have and that we must go through, whatever painful experiences, whatever injustice we may suffer, it's God's way of alienating our affections from this world and reattaching them to their heavenly home. There's another uh, important reason. We find that in John 15. Another important reason why God allows us to be unjustly treated or to be misrepresented, or go through pain and suffering. And I don't mean just physical pain here. We're talking about other kinds of emotional pain. In fact, that's even more difficult sometimes than physical pain. And uh, this is in John chapter 15. It's interesting to note that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit what? The Comforter. Notice this. verse 26 it says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So Jesus, when you go through suffering, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Why? To comfort you. And to testify of Jesus. To teach you how to be meek and lowly. That's why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. There are other reasons too. But in doing so, in sending you the Holy Spirit to comfort you, He is creating a bond between your soul, your mind, your emotions, and Himself. You know, when someone comes to comfort you in some distress, you really think of that person highly, don't you? I don't know. There's some people that have a knack for that. You know, sometimes when I'm under some stress, somebody will come to me and encourage me. And they don't even realize it, maybe. Or maybe they do. It doesn't matter. But God uses them to encourage me. And I think of that person with a bond of friendship. We all go through similar trials, we all have like experiences. And that makes it possible for us to understand each other. And God uses these painful experiences to develop a collective sense as well as an individual sense of our unity with heaven. Our unity with Jesus. And our oneness with His suffering. Alright. Here's another reason why God allows suffering and why God allows offense and why God allows us and ordains for us to suffer injustice. And it's found in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. All right. And to you who are troubled... Rest with us. So if you have trouble, learn to rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. Okay? So when we learn, we go through trouble, we keep our mouth shut and we have peace because we cling to Jesus. Okay? And to you who are troubled, rest with us. In other words, don't be anxious about it. Don't be troubled about it. Put yourself in the hand of God. Let Him care for the consequences or for the result. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a universal sense of justice that has been offended. It was offended when Adam sinned. It was offended when Christ hung on the cross to redeem Adam and all of his generations, right on down to our own time. And that sense of justice is still being offended every time one of God's faithful servants is unjustly treated by someone else. That universal sense of justice out there is... is, is waiting to be resolved. That, that incongruity, that tension between what should be and what isn't, or what is, rather. One day, that universal sense of justice is going to be resolved. I'm glad that I don't have to administrate it. I'm sure that I would be unjust to someone in the process. God is the one who's going to administrate justice. Now, we can have our own little pious ways of retaliating by saying, oh, he's going to pay for that at the judgment. Well, maybe not. Maybe he's going to come to a census and and we will forgive him for what he's done to us. You see? So that universal sense of justice can only be resolved by Jesus himself. And we have to leave those matters with him. We have to let him handle that which is that which has happened to us and the correcting of that problem or the or the resolving of that issue. And so part of the reason why God allows us to go through injustice is so that we will recognize a lar- in a, in a, in a, maybe in a small way what the larger great controversy is all about. And when that sense of justice is resolved, when all of those unanswered questions are laid to rest, we will have absolute and eternal peace that God was just all along, that He was right, and that what, what He has done has been the best and most securing thing for the whole universe that sin shall not rise up a second time. There's another reason, number nine. Luke chapter six. Turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter six. This is Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I grew up in a Christian home, and so I memorized the Beatitudes, the the Blessed Are Ye, you know, there in Matthew chapter 5. How about you? Did you memorize those two at one day or another? Well, you should, if you haven't had that opportunity. And I always remember coming down and being very puzzled by this, but always applying it in a certain way. When it comes down to the the statement where he says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And I always thought, well, all right, that must mean that that there is going to be, those people out there are going to persecute us in here. You see? When I got a little older, I realized that there is something more to this. Notice what it says here. And this is more pungent. Jesus' words here, the way Luke has them written, is more pungent than Matthew's Gospel. Verse 22 says, Blessed are ye, chapter 6 of Luke, verse 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. Have you ever had someone hate you? And when they shall separate you from their company, have you ever been disfellowshipped? And shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Now, of course, we can precipitate some of those kind of things on our own, you see. Uh, we can create problems for ourselves by our own behavior and our own attitudes, and things that you know, are our own fault. But here Jesus is talking about those things that happen to us for His sake. When it's no fault of our own. Have you ever lost a job because of the Sabbath? Or because of some other principle of truth? Um, Notice what Jesus says when this happens. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy for great is your reward in heaven. How can you leap for joy when such pain is happening? That's hard to imagine. When the stress and the emotional trauma is going on, when there's tension between people and, and, and fellow brothers and sisters, and, and who knows what. All kinds of reasons. In all of this, Jesus is saying, rejoice. How do you rejoice? We have to take it by faith, don't we? And we have to be happy and rejoice anyway, even though it's the hardest thing in the world to do. We want to go out and grumble. We want to go out and tell our friends what so-and-so has done to us. You know, that's another way to retaliate, is go and tell everybody else about it. And you can do that, too, in a very, very pious way. Well, we've got to pray for Brother So-and-so. Do you know what he did? (laughs) You know? Look what so and so did to me. We better really ask God to bless and and convert this person, you know. And you can become very pious about retaliating by gossiping all over the, the planet about what so and so has done to you. I'm not saying that there's never a time when we need share with others our burdens and our pain but let us be certain that the motive behind it is holy motive. Okay? That's important. But I there's still something here that I've got to share with you. Notice what it says. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is what? Great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Well, now, let's just think about this for a moment. Who did what to the prophets? Who was it that persecuted the prophets? It was God's, well, not only God's people, God's leaders. Church leaders were the ones that persecuted God's faithful people down through the centuries. Do you think that you are going to escape and that I am going to escape similar treatment? What makes us think that somehow humanity is any different than it was in the days of Christ? So, Jesus then is not talking about relations necessarily, although it could include this, but he's not just talking about relations that have to do with the world out there in relation to God's people. He is talking, and notice, primarily talking about relationships between God's people themselves. Relationships between brother and brother, and sister and sister, family and family within the church. That's a hard one to swallow. How do you swallow your pride? when someone has just made you look wicked in front of the church, or even behind in front of the church board, or in front of the business meeting. And it's happened many, many times. And it happens even to this day. All right. So primarily, God is talking about relationships between His church. But notice one other thing here. In verse 23, it says... Behold, your reward is great in heaven. I don't believe that there's going to be a whole lot of difference in the reward between your reward and my reward when we're in heaven. You know, there may be differences in stars and our crowns because you may have won more souls than I or whatever. Okay, God knows how to reward us, though, in ways that we don't even think about. You know, there's a ripple effect. If I tell one person and they tell five others and they tell a hundred others... I may end up with, you know, thousands of stars in my crown because of that one contact. I don't know how God's going to do all this. But, and that's not my business here tonight or anytime. Let God handle that. We're all going to throw those crowns at Jesus' feet and we're going to say, Lord, this is your crown, not mine. You know, I don't need this crown. This is, I'm not worthy of this crown. But, in light of eternity, the... The differences in reward are just, you know, incremental. There's there's hardly any difference. In light of all of eternity and the glories and beauties of eternity and the privilege of being with Jesus and, and so many of those wonderful things that we're going to experience. But why does Jesus make this point here in verse 23? Jesus says... Behold, your reward is great in heaven. What I believe is that those who suffer the most, those who experience the greatest injustice, those who experience the power of being rejected by men, those who experience the trauma of being cast out of the society of men, And that day is coming upon every sincere and faithful Seventh-day Adventist. When that day comes, and when it happens in your life, even before that time, those who suffer the most are going to appreciate the reward the most. Those who suffer the greatest injustice are going to appreciate what Jesus has done. The more you suffer, the more you will love Him. What a powerful argument in favor of being unjustly treated while here on planet Earth. Praise God! Bring it on! I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to learn this principle. I don't have to go out and stir it up because there's plenty of that happening anyway. (laughs) But um, when it comes, we can rejoice because we know that in the end... It's all going to redound to the glory of God, and not only that, it's going to be a great blessing to us in the process. Injustice, pain, sorrow, trials, tribulations on this earth don't do us any harm. They're good for us. God has purpose in it, a big purpose. Last and tenth on my list. Is found in First Peter, Chapter Two. First Peter, Chapter Two, verses twenty one to twenty three. In fact, um, let's start with verse twenty. For even here unto, I'm sorry, verse 20, For what glory is it if, when ye are buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? There's no virtue in that. If you've made a problem for yourself, and you suffer the consequences, well, you, you know, you, you have to take it patiently. You know, I mean, some people don't, I guess. You know, They don't always see the cause and effect and they're ready to blame everybody else for their problems. You ever know anybody like that? Things that you can see are obviously their own fault yet they're blaming everybody else. They aren't taking any responsibility for their own situation themselves. That's a terrible deception. And if you suffer from it, pray that God will release you from it so that you can learn about that principle. But, It says, if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. This is what really counts. This is where character, as we say in in America, where rubber meets the road. You say that here too? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where character stands the test. Notice, for even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. In other words, Jesus is guaranteeing that there is going to be offenses. In fact, Luke 17, verse 1 says, Indeed, offenses will come. It is impossible, Jesus said, but that offenses will come. So we can plan on it. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, you can plan on it. God has ordained it for so many good reasons. All right. So here we have Jesus and we're to follow in His steps. How are we to follow? What did He do? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled... Reviled not again. How easy is it for me to want to shoot back? When somebody shoots at me, I want to shoot back. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who in his own self bear our sins, in his own body on a tree, that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness, by whose stripes Ye were healed. So, all of this comes down and redounds to the glory of God. It reveals, when you go through pain and suffering the way Jesus did, and you do not threaten, you do not revile, you do not retaliate, you do not get angry, then you are simply revealing the character of God. See? And that's what God wants. He's looking for people to reveal His character. So, In all of this, it brings glory to the character of God. These are the big purposes in all of this. And it all ties into the great controversy and the great close of history. Because God is looking for a people in these last days, a last generation, who are going to live his character in their lives on planet Earth under his power and represent him truly and fully under great pressure and under great injustice. It's going to happen. And we might as well learn from this God's purpose, so that when it does happen, we have a way of thinking about it that it doesn't unsettle our peace. We want to keep that peace of Jesus in our hearts all the time. And this way, we won't be unsettled when we understand God's, God has a plan in it. One last Bible text before we close. Isaiah chapter 64. I want you to notice something. Isaiah chapter 64. uh, I'm sorry. uh, 63. Verse 9. Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 9. Marvelous passage. Notice what it says. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. The same God that carried his people throughout the centuries, whether it was the Israelites in the wilderness whether it was the Walden seas in the Dark Ages who, are, who, who were um, persecuted for their righteousness, whether it is those of us who are living right now down at the end of time who suffer injustice for the cause of Christ. Jesus promises that He will be with us just like He was with them. The same God who was with them will be with us. I love that passage. The angel of his presence saved them. You see, God is in the business of saving. He ordains us to go through, through injustice and through offense in order to save us and others. That's his overriding purpose. So why should we be offended? Why should we fuss why should we get angry at someone else? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. This only happens so that we can learn to wrestle against mighty powers in heaven and earth, and that God can give us the strength to do it. May God help us. May God help us to appreciate injustice and suffering for Jesus' sake. I hope this little Bible study tonight has given you a bigger picture of what God can do and why He does the things He does. And why He allows the things He allows. And why He ordains the things that He ordains. So that we may live in peace and happiness now and forevermore. God bless you.